And a very good morning to you. We're live from London and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up in the next 60 minutes, my panellists, Alex von Tunzelman and Yossi Mackelberg will join me to go through the week's main stories. Alex, what have you spotted? Well, there's a lot going on this week and we've been talking a lot about questions of identity, belonging and migration. Who gets to be in a place and who doesn't? And Yossi, what have you been keeping your eye on? It's been a busy week and of course the Middle East keeps us busy, protests in Israel. Saudi Arabia and Iran resuming a diplomatic relation unexpectedly. And of course, what happened with migration here in the UK. Uh, we'll be crossing to Marseille to get the latest from our French and North African correspondent. And Karen Krasanovich is here in the studio to talk to us about the Oscars. Karen, welcome. Not red, but beige carpets this year. It's a champagne carpet. We're not saying beige. OK, thank you very much indeed for that. Plus, we'll be heading to Marbella to check in with our editorial director Tyler Brule as he finishes a week of well-being. It's the 12th of March 2023 live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. very good morning to you both and good morning to you if you're tuning in you've just switched on your radio and you've got Monocle on Sunday. Uh, Good morning Yossi. Good morning Alex. Good Good morning. morning. All well I hope. All good. Well look let's just check in for the ultimate in wellness. Uh, we're going to go straight to Marbella, where we can hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brule. A very good morning to you, Tyler. Buenos dias. Good morning, Emma. A very, a very good to have you on the on the programme, given the fact that you have just spent an entire week being, well, sorted out is the only way that I can imagine bit has, has happened to you, according to your column. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I decided that this year it wouldn't be uh, Thailand. It wouldn't be a week or 10 days uh, at the Chief Assam. We would uh, keep it a little bit closer to Europe. So, decided to go to the Bookinger Clinic uh, for, as you said, uh, a week of wellness reset. And, and it really is reset because it is, you know, the name Bookinger sort of says it all. It is, it is a bit of a Germanic affair, which I think would be really also right up your street as well. It looks marvellous, if a little terrifying. I have looked at the website and taken the time to go through it this morning. Um, the thing that, that, that struck me is that it's the, what's the founder, great-grandfather Otto Buchinger, Buchinger decided that his desire is to be always alert and attentive. Now, day I say it, if there's anybody on this earth who is already alert and attentive, it's you. So, frankly, I'm trying to work out exactly how bright-eyed and bushy-tailed you could actually become. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe that pit was sorted, and I didn't go in for uh, maybe some of the programs which are, are designed for mental alertness, so maybe give me a few years, uh, but was much more interested, yeah, not, not in say, the, the core fasting element, but when they said, you know, you can get by on 800 calories a day, I thought that sounds good, um, as much as, you know, walking and doing all of the other things uh, one should do to, to supplement that lifestyle. That's lovely. I'm assuming that there are 800 quite delicious calories. So they, they, this is the amazing thing. I mean, again, bumpy start. I wasn't sort of feeling 100% when I checked in. And the first thing was like some brown rice and some applesauce. I thought, okay, this is not going to go well. Uh, but uh, but that, you know, that was on, on the doctor's orders, super bland diet. Uh, but everything uh, looked up right after that. It perked up. And some good treatments as well. The, the website has a lot of yellow paste on it and lots of people in white coats. Yeah, it's, well, this is the thing. It's, you know, if people are expecting, you know, I would say sort of, you know, wind chimes uh, and maybe all, all of the, the cliches of, you know, classic sort of spa life, this is not for you. This is, there are a lot of lab coats, uh, a lot of lab coats in high rotation. I like a place that has a night nurse, Emma. 
you know, that someone, you know, if you just, you know, you, whatever, if you're sort of feeling a bit too achy, painy from whatever you were doing in the course of the day, that you can just pick up the red line and someone will come and sort you out. How marvellous. That does actually sound something that I could sign up to. Right. So you have been reset. Um, you're, you're sounding spruce and very chipper. So what's next? What is next? Well, there's, there's, lot, there's lots on the go. I think you're going to potentially be busy because it's it just, it, you know, I think as we sort of hurdle to the end of, of Q1, uh, there is that whole sort of period of planning that we've all been working on to, of course, yeah, think about all of the different things we've got going. And, of course, we've got a variety of books out. We've got new books that are coming uh, down the track, a variety of events. So uh, there, <laughs> there's much on, on the go. This week, uh, we start on Thursday. So if anyone is in uh, or around Zurich, we have a, um, a book signing for our Book of Spain. Of course, we'll sign any other books as well. So that's an event in Zurich. We've got then shortly after, we also have London. Uh, so a book signing event at Midori House. Uh, hopefully you'll be around for a bit of Hamon and Cava for that, Emma. Then two weeks from today, we move on to the UAE and we're doing an event in Dubai at one of Jumeirah's properties. Um, and again, that will be probably a double header book signing. We'll, we'll do a bit of Portugal and we'll do a bit of uh, Spain there as well. Exciting stuff that you're going to Dubai. <laughs> yes, it's uh, Dubai, oddly, has like, sort of cropped up on the uh, itinerary more often uh, than I thought. But we've got um, hopefully a few projects on, on the go there. And, um, and there's going to be quite a delegation of both Monocle crew and, of course, our colleagues from our agency went creative as well. And then after that, it's over to the United States. Well, actually, not quite. We, we continue east. I don't think there's <laughs> any events, but well, there might be. We, and this is one for uh, our, uh, our friends in Hong Kong to keep an ear out for. We might, might do something at the Foreign Correspondents Club um, in Hong Kong the week after. Uh, so that is something that we're just currently pulling together at the moment. Uh, but then, yes, we, we, indeed, we head over to the States. Another book signing at Rockefeller Center uh, at the new McNally Jackson bookstore that just opened there. And then Sarah McNally is going to be joining us down in Asheville in North Carolina uh, because she'll be joining the first ever Monocle Weekender in the United States. It's all brilliant stuff, Tyler. Thank you so much. And all fueled by rice and apple sauce. Is that correct? Uh, uh, well, hopefully, and, and a little <laughs> and a little beyond that. Have I'm, a good Sunday. I'm just wondering if that if this is going yeah. to be this is going to be filtering through to the culture at Midori House and across the bureau now. Well, I'm wondering, you know, what what a, what what 800 calories a day would would do for well, not some, all of our colleagues. Um, but as I said, I think we've, we've got a pretty bushy-tailed crew, so I think we're in good shape. Indeed. Anything is anything out of the order is streng verboten. Tyler Brule, thank you so much <laughs> Thanks, for joining Emma. us on the line from Marbella. Uh, that was our editorial director, all bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and and sorted out. Um, anyone here done a detox in the, in the similar vein of our editorial director? I need to do one immediately. That sounds highly <laughs> beneficial. I mean, 800 calories a day sounds quite brutal, but um, but very good for you in the short term, I'm sure, to have a little bit of a detox. It is. There's, bits of, there's a bit of intermi- intermittent fasting that goes on in, in the household, in the Nelson household, uh, not necessarily by myself or my husband. And it, I find it wonderful to watch, but just, <laughs> just look at him and just think, how do you do this? As I'm trying to sort of balance the food for everybody and he sort of sits there pushing a bit of chicken around a plate. <laughs> um, it, it is one of those things. I'm a big fan of bubbly water. 
So a couple of weeks ago, I went to Baden-Baden in Germany, where they are incredibly good. Tyler was talking there about the, the Germanic, Germanic way of well-being um, and how you can just soak yourself in, in the municipal Roman spa. I mean, they do this properly. This is, as you would imagine, you go in quite a lot of white coats, quite a lot of people with no clothes on as well, but we don't go into that bit. Um, <laughs> but you sort of float around outside in the most glorious spa, looking at the, you know, the, the sort of like the onion top churches and and then it starts to snow um but what i wasn't aware of is in germany apparently and if you are you know part of the german health system i do apologize if i'm incorrect but you can in fact claim on germany's national health system to go and have a spa treatment because it is in it is part of your sort of like your well-being and your health my god that's a civilized country isn't that grown up how about you yossi have you done well in the uk you can get an ambulance Yeah. <laughs> on, on, yeah. on, on time, so yeah. forget about anyone paying for your spa. Actually, yeah. we tried it in, 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 in Budapest. Mm. They've got 17, there. 18 out there. And that's, they? that's, that's beautiful again, but zero degrees outside. So mm. getting out of it when it's an outdoor. It, uh, detox, yes. you know, in our household, we like to cook. So the compensation is yesterday is go to a spin class on doing it three, four times. And then you look at... Or I spend 400 calories, you know, by trying to kill ourself on a, on a, on a bike. <laughs> yep. And then you say probably in 10 minutes back in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. well, actually, I go to a spin class and, I've just, and by the time I've got home, I've, eat, I've just popped into enough little shops, etc. to have actually eaten what I've just yeah, done. Two croissants later and you say... It's all, it's, you know, it's all, it's all whip and kiss. The stuff yes. that goes in and the stuff that comes Good. out. It's absolutely bananas. But you're, you're a spinner, are you? Yes, Right, Martin. I think I'm quite a fan of these middle European spas. Similarly, mm. Budapest has been a place I've gone a few times. The Sechenyi is possibly yeah. the one you think of, which exactly. is so beautiful. And yes, Yossi's right, the hot tip is to remember your flip-flops because otherwise, yes, getting out in the snow is a very cold scenario. Very or you, or you might get, take and a little a bit of a tumble. And a towel. And a towel. <laughs> yes, you can rent a towel, but it does. they charge you quite a bit for it. You buy it, actually. Yes, you, oh, yeah, you, you have to they, buy they it. make you buy it. Yeah, you see, there you go. <laughs> so remember your towel. Absolutely. Um, but yes, I think we'd all probably be a bit better off if we took time out for our for ourselves. Wouldn't it be yeah. nice? I quite like the idea of it being a municipal spa as well insofar as you, you well basically it was full of old ladies which mm. is great. That's Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful and the best part about these German spa towns and you get them in Austria as well that a spa town must always have an excellent cake shop. <laughs> so the minute that you've collapsed out of the spa feeling wonderful and you know, was it wohltuend well-being um, then you just go and have an enormous cake at the Conditore that's the way that's the way we roll here um, how have your weeks been ladies and gentlemen have you had a has it been a good productive week or are we just clattering towards the end wishing we could just jump in a spa or, or seeing the little men and ladies in white coats night nurse <laughs> slightly option B for me yes, uh, yes. <laughs> a couple of really big deadlines this week I finished my last one at 5.45 on Friday evening so that was that, that was a moment now that's me. efficiency because you know sometimes being able to do something to, to, to clock off before six o'clock on a Friday evening when you are when we work in the world of writing and, uh, and, and broadcasting it doesn't necessarily <laughs> Always happen. <laughs> Very firm deadline. Okay. So Alex has done her homework. So top marks for Alex. How about you, Yossi? How's your uh, week been? Sadly, I didn't finish it on time. So, <laughs> so I no have spa to, for you. I need, I need to mark myself down for working also during the weekend. Because as a university lecturer, can you actually dock points off your own work? I probably should, right. but but I can't. You know, this is the privilege. I can do it to others. But between actually 
writing my columns this week and because of the ongoing, especially when you write about what's happening in Israel right now, that we'll talk later, it's kind of an ongoing. So you think you finish and then you have more to do and then mm. the teaching. So, and, and then, you know, I think I told you now we're having a puppy. So this takes quite a bit of, oh. of the time. Congratulations Wonderful. on having the puppy. Well, do we do we know who the puppy is? Does does the little puppy have a name or a little yeah. boy, boy puppy girl puppy? It's, it's, well, that it's, won't matter for much longer. Yes, yeah, <laughs> we've been in fast for three months. It's called Kiko and it's a Shiba Inu. Oh, wow. very nice puppy. Yes. For those of us who don't know what a Shiba Inu does, looks and sounds like, what, what's a Shiba Inu? It looks like a mini Aski or a, a smaller version of Akita. Okay, got That's it. Right. Oh, those lovely little it, sharp face things. So, They're gorgeous. Yes, they are reddish sort of. Very sweet. If you are on the internet a lot, it's called a doge. It was the basis for Dogecoin. <laughs> she exactly. you who know, went vile. Someone was... called me, saw me in the shops the other day and say, crypto coin, crypto coin. It took me some time what he was talking about because there is a Shiba crypto car, the currency yeah. sorry so. and Emma's looking completely baffled but yeah <laughs> one, a, totally a picture of a Shiba Inu went viral right. um, yes. uh, with a sort of comedy written thing around it calling it a doge rather than a dog in a sort of you know rather internet-y way um, and then Dogecoin this form of crypto coin was invented uh, around the Shiba Inu. And is there any money left in Dogecoin? No, I'm, I'm sure you can have a lot of them now for not very much if you want <laughs> Or you could have a proper dog. Exactly. Yes. I'd way, go for the way, dog. Way cuter than the crypto coin. Really? Yeah. Absolutely. It, it is, this is why I love Monocle on Sunday because we learn things we, I knew nothing about. Thank you so much. Um, Yossi, you were talking about the fact that you're writing, rewriting, writing, rewriting. And before we came on air, we were talking about the fact, you know, we wanted to discuss the, the weekend stories. Um, the headline coming out of Israel is that we are seeing some of the most widespread protests ever seen in the history of Israel. Um, just tell us what, what's, what's been happening. The widespread ever in Israel. <clears throat> we never seen something like this. And I must admit, as someone that wrote time and again and said this in this studio, if I have any criticism of the kind of the left or the liberal progressive, however the call is apathy. You know, they let the rights, you know, build settlements, gradually annex the West Bank, kill the peace with the Palestinians, becoming a more theocracy step by step. And they enjoy good life in Tel Aviv as long as there is a, by the end of it, of glass of wine, it's all good. And this apathy has gone, has gone completely. To see again the numbers, you know, the demonstration protests, we never know the right numbers, but whether there were 300,000, half a million, and you see it, 10, 10, 11 weeks straight. Just recap for us the reason why they are protesting. It's all to do with proposed change in the law, isn't it? So towards the end of last year, election were held, the fifth election in four years in Israel, and the right won this election. In Israeli politics, there are always different configurations to, to form a coalition. But in this case, the coalition was configured as the Likud party led by Netanyahu with the very far right. And the reason that no one else would like, only the ultra-Orthodox and the far right would sit with Netanyahu because of its corruption trial. So what you get, they actually know that they could blackmail him actually into what they call, uh, call uh, judicial reform which will weaken the Supreme Court. There will be an override legislation about, about whatever the Supreme Court decides. The politician basically will decide who's going to be in the Supreme Court. They limit their age. 
They will make the legal advisors within the ministries appointment by the ministers, and we know exactly what happens if, <laughs> if those are the kind of appointment. So there is a series of legislation already in the pipeline. It's sensitive to what's going to happen inside Israel, but even more what's going to happen in relation to the Palestinians. So people walk up and say, this is going basically to destroy Israel democracy. You know, they call it judicial coup, not reform, the protester. I think it's judicial vandalism. It's just taking the basic laws, which are sort of constitution in Israel, and change it completely, just because they happen to have majority in one election. So people, it's, it's not, again, there is no real organization of this. It looks very organized, but there is no leadership. So it's very spontaneous, but they can well organize without leadership. It can be people from the high tech. They said this will destroy the high tech. So the economy, you have for the first time, I saw so many reservists, pilots, elite units said they are not going to serve because there is also legal issue. To a large extent, despite what happened in the West Bank, that many calls for the ICC to investigate, because of the independence of the judiciary in Israel, <laughs> Israel got probably an out-of-jail card for many, many years. They are also fearful that if it is gone, then the ICC, an international prosecutor, will be involved. So there is a lot of different interests running here, whether it's the economy, whether it's the civil rights, human rights, what happened with the, Palest you know, with the Palestinian issue that brings people to the street. And the more the government is reacting badly and say, no, come what may, we are going to do that. And Netanyahu is leaving for Rome for his wedding anniversary at the expense of, of the country. It's become crazier by the moment, the more you see people out there. It's an incredible sight, isn't it, Alex, given the fact that, you know, as, as Yossi has said in the past, Protest is not what we see an awful lot of in Israel, but but once you start to separate the you know once you start to bring the judiciary in from its independent state, it's clear that this is asking for trouble. I think it's really astonishing to watch, and I mean certainly absolutely right. You know what Yossi said about you know the, I mean the pictures are completely extraordinary that we have seen for so many weeks now, as you say, for really a long time, a sustained effort. And I mean similarly, I'd I'd felt when I visited Israel and um, and spoke to people there that there clearly was a liberal left, but absolutely it was it was pretty much in abeyance. You know, it wasn't very active. You know, people would kind of complain over that glass of wine in Tel Aviv, but would they actually do anything? I mean, it seemed not. So, I mean, I think it's quite extraordinary to see this happening now. Um, what do you think is going to happen next? It is that question that you, know, you said we've sat in the studio a million times and said it's really bad. There is bad, you know, there is violence. There is there is always something that is pulling Israel into trouble and, and, and catastrophe. There's a possibility of everything tipping over quite a lot in Israel. But... And we always say, this is the worst it's ever been, it can't get any worse. And then obviously it does go and get a little bit worse, doesn't it, Yossi? Yeah, because I think it's, at the best of time, it's a country on the edge. When the forces there are facing each other, and interestingly enough, there are not counter-demonstrations of those who support the reform or 
maybe they feel complacent. They say, we want, they behave a little bit like kids in a sweet shop. Oh, we want the election. We can have all the sweets and we can have it now. We can completely change democracy. And they call the demonstrator, which really the salt of the earth of Israel society. They call them anarchists, terrorists. I love the placard by 12 years old. Can, my mother always calls me a terrorist. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, it's become there is sense of humor there. Two things. One, I'm really afraid if someone, mindless person, will translate when the son of the prime minister tweets that there equates, he likes, he likes a tweet that equates the, the protesters to Nazis, that someone will take a gun, someone will throw a grenade. It happened before in 1983 in a piece now. A, an Israeli prime minister was assassinated in 1995. If something like this happened, then it can deteriorate. On the other one, and you know it might sound surprising, I, I'm actually an optimist in this situation. Probably Israel, on, on the eve of its 75th birthday, needed a crisis, needed a constitutional crisis. And this coalition went gradually. The same, once they were in Tel Aviv, will keep, okay, so you change a little bit, another incremental change, and by the end of it, you find that Israel is a completely different country and a more dictatorial. Now they can't sit on the fence. There is no sitting on the fence anymore. So they need to make a, a decision. And I think this is actually might be in the river. And as long as it doesn't descend into violence, it might actually end in a better but I'm pushing my optimism. You are, but I mean, but let's go for it because normally when you come into the radio station, it is just—it's all dreadful. Um, and <laughs> Alex, as a historian, is there anything that you can we can draw from history that can teach us a few lessons here? Well, I think it's quite hard to. I mean, Yossi's just referred back, of course, to the kind of 75-year span of the story of modern Israel, to you know points of violence, 1983, uh, 19, uh, early 1990s, and all of this. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, there are incidents in the past, but I do think this is something a bit new. And I mean, you know, Israel is, the modern Israel is kind of a unique phenomenon in the modern world and how it resolves itself. As Yossi says, it's always been on the edge of conflict um, and always been on the edge of kind of, you know, of crisis and difficulty. How that state resolves itself if it is going to exist going forward. And I don't say that from any point of view of wishing to eliminate it, but, you know, speaking to, I mean, quoting Israeli writers like Aleph Bet Yehoshua, who have always spoken about can it survive? Can it pull together? And in what form can it do so? Um, you know, we have to look at how that state can resolve itself. You cannot exist forever in this permanent state of crisis if something can always tip it over into Especially into when it seems that governments, successive governments in themselves have been chaotic. I mean, it, you know, the, it has been impossible for Israel to actually bring together a cohesive parliament for years now. It's five elections in four years, five years. Yeah. Um, so when you have the, you know, the leadership is, is, is bumpy, but then you also have the far right coming in and deliberately courting controversy and things that they know will will rouse the rabble. I mean, that doesn't help, does it? Well, no. <laughs> but I mean, you know, but on the other hand, the fact is that there are very serious fault lines here. There are big, very big unresolved questions about Israel and Palestine, which are so huge um, that it's very, very hard to see how you resolve them. People have even stopped talking, I think, about this two-state solution in the last few years, the kind of liberal left internationally that always used to speak about that now seems to have gone quite quiet about 
two states. So I just wrote an article today in favor of two states. There we go. <laughs> Apart from your seat. <laughs> yeah. I think it has to be a different modality than what we thought in 1993 with the Oslo Accords. But I think I completely agree with you. There are so many fault lines. It's not only one. It's religious, whether secular. It's rich and poor. You know, there in Tel Aviv, there is in the area there, there is accumulation of unbelievable wealth compared to the periphery. You know, those who are on the left and the right, the ones that are more hawkish and dovish in relations with the Palestinians. But this needs a dialogue that needs to find a way to move forward when you have populism. And, and we haven't mentioned it which a prime minister that does what he does because he's facing a corruption trial. It's all a game to get him off the hook. With a corruption trial, that's the situation. So the first thing is removing Netanyahu, and then, and then you start maybe a dialogue. But it, it won't, the, the protests are important, but as long as they lead to, to a dialogue, a genuine dialogue, what does it mean to be Jewish and democratic? Um, let's move on to another story which has been huge here in the United Kingdom but sort of it opens up the big issues as to how we treat other people as, as human beings fleeing uh, fleeing disaster um, the British government's new asylum plan um, the intention to stop the small boats from arriving in the United Kingdom um, this this plan has been mooted for about a week or so now and the, and the Conservative government is determined to push it through um, the issue here is that um, if you are fleeing disaster or persecution or whatever it is, uh, should you land on a beach in the UK, you'll be immediately placed in a dissension centre and then flown off to a third country. Um, Alex, what are your thoughts on this at the moment? Because it, it sort of really does dig deep into the way that we treat other people. It does. I think there's a lot of things going on here, and one of which is the extreme cost of living crisis in Britain and the government having absolutely no solutions to that and therefore trying to dig in instead to what is effectively a culture war issue, something you know where they can create and blame an external enemy, in this case migrants um, or refugees, uh, for their complete lack of ability to manage their own country. I mean, you know, it's effectively intended largely, I think, as a distraction, but it has, of course, it is, of course, a huge issue in and of itself as well, um, a massive one. And I mean, what's happened really is that the British government has closed down the various safe routes that existed to claim asylum in Britain. Um, you know, you cannot, there are really no safe or legal routes for someone who's maybe, say, a schoolgirl in Iran who's being poisoned in her classroom or, you know, a woman in Afghanistan who is having God knows what happened to her under the Taliban. There is no way for those people to get to the UK where they perhaps might have relatives or something like that um, legally. So the small boat issue has grown and grown and grown, really, in response to there being no safe routes. Um, and for some reason, the government's response to this, rather than to say, well, in which case we clearly need to open some safe routes, is to say um, we must penalise people who are uh, the, really the victims in all of this. It is a difficult thing, isn't it, that the, the, it seems such a stark but clear and, and sort of fail-safe way of cutting migration. And what Alex has been saying has been brought up quite a lot this week, which is migration suddenly becomes the agenda that the British government can 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 talk about quite openly because they know it will stir the electorate. Yeah, it's a deflection from everything else. 
if nothing works, whether it's in the economy, the public sector, let's talk about migrants, call it the illegal migration bill, because who wants illegal things? You know, if he comes and says, oh, we're in support of illegal, say, no, it's illegal. No, instead of actually having an intelligent, again, dialogue, debate about migration, and separate between, you know, as you, as you mentioned, there are people desperate out there, you know, whether it's Iran, in Afghanistan, in other places that need a safe haven to come to this country, but they don't have. They're economic migrants. The UK needs economic migrants. So how do we deal with that? So there are different levels, different issues there. They all pile together. For me, the indication how bad it is, Bill, is that Priti Patel actually criticized it. Okay. So this is, so, a, former, this is a former Home Secretary who uh, many accused of uh, actually starting, beginning this uh, whole demonizing of of the other basically that if you come in a small boat then actually we should be going after the people who were who were selling the journeys on the small boats but the people who seem to be being punished here seems to be the people trying to find their way to to safety absolutely and in her case she criticized and rightly so the detention of children and one of the candidates is deflection because they know that it's breaching international law. Then it's got to the European Court of Human Rights. Then they will probably tell us off that this is impossible. Then the media will be accused and the leftists for stopping it. And all these, all these liberal lawyers, they don't understand how difficult it is. And we are exactly back to there because we refuse actually to look in immigration in, different, in, 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 in a different and more intelligent way. What actually the country needs immigration. Again, obviously, I'm a migrant. <laughs> I, I don't think the listener won't recognize it. And, and that, you know, that's gained... Your good Yorkshire accent there, you see. Is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were from Wales. Yeah. But, but the reality went through all the legal processes. Maybe I'm a pretty Patel nightmare because I came as a student and never left. But at the same time... Oh, it's your fault. It's, it's completely... It's so many, so many other things. But the reality is that many of us migrants are actually decent human beings, if I can say that. We pay our taxes. We don't, we don't do bad things. We don't break the law. And at the same time, we are vilified as, as, as terrible human beings that we should be kicked out or shouldn't be allowed in the first place. It's a question of language, isn't it? When you start to... There was a big row last year when 50 people died in the sea coming mm. over and everyone said they're migrants, they're, they're immigrants, they're refugees, this kind of stuff. And then someone <clears> said, hang on a minute, no, 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 these are people. Mm. And if you start talking about... When you create the other, that's, that's when you start to really get into sort of really difficult poisonous places, isn't it, Alex? Yes, and I mean, I think that's sort of really what's kicked this row off this week into another level. And, you know, actually, the British public opinion on this has moved quite a lot from being very anxious about migration before the Brexit vote to it now being really rather a low priority um, among the public. And I mean, certainly from the stats I've seen this week, it does not seem to have resulted in any kind of electoral boost for the Conservative Party in the polls, um, this campaign. But, you know, I suppose we'll take a longer view when the polls come out next week and see what's happened then. But I mean, and this is kind of what's brought it into this huge row that is now all around a footballer and and all sorts of other aspects that I'm sure we'll get into, um, is that a lot of people do find the language very offensive and difficult around this and very incendiary. And of course, we know that that can result um, in in attacks on people. We've also seen, you know, in, in recent weeks in Britain, we've seen attacks on hotels where asylum seekers and refugees are staying um, by kind of far-right groups who've bonded together. And, you know, that has resulted in violence. And 
you know, in that sort of environment, very febrile, it's very, very dangerous to dehumanise these people further. Uh, thank you. Alex von Tunzelman and Yossi Meckelberg joining me in the studio for Monocle on Sunday. It's Emma Nelson here. Uh, you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. The time here in London is 9.31. Let's uh, cross, though, to uh, Marseille to hear from our North Africa correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald, for a little bit of a check-in and so what's happening on her patch. Good morning to you, Mary. How's Marseille looking today? Marseille is sunny. Um, the Mediterranean perch is, uh, is very sunny today. We've had a, a wonderful spring with uh, sunshine and blue skies for much of it. Wonderful. In that context, what news from where you are? Well, it's actually been an interesting couple of weeks uh, when it comes to the Mediterranean uh, space more generally. Um, to start with, uh, with North Africa, it's been a sobering uh, few weeks, I think it's fair to say. A reminder um, of the, the situation as it stands compared to, say, 2011. And to remind our listeners, in 2011, they will recall the, the wave of, of uprisings and revolutions across the region where you saw um, autocrats that had been in power for many decades ousted in popular uprisings. And, you know, I, I, I covered that as a reporter at the time, and there was this incredible kind of sense of, of possibility um, in, in terms of their democratic transitions. Now, all these years later, the, 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 the situation looks much uh, different, um, alas. And to start with Tunisia, because Tunisia back in 2011 was was where the whole Arab Spring, as it was then described, began. And over the last decade, Tunisia and its uh, flickering democratic transition continued to be a, a poster child uh, for the region in terms of what may be possible still, despite a backsliding uh, towards uh, uh, autocracy elsewhere in the region. Sadly, over the last couple of years, um, Tunisia has also um, slid uh, back to autocracy. Um, this began in 2021 when the president, Kai Saeed, uh, dismissed the prime minister. He went on to suspend parliament and he invoked emergency procedures that allowed him to rule by decree. And what was interesting at that time was, while a lot of Tunisian um, activists were saying, you know, this is the coup, they were greatly alarmed. Many Western diplomats were prepared to wait and see. They were prepared to give uh, Kai Saeed the benefit of the doubt. Saeed subsequently went on to replace uh, the constitution with one that gave him sweeping powers, including over the judiciary. So what we've seen in recent months is a roundup of um, dozens of activists, lawyers, judges, business figures, um, intellectuals, anyone that Saeed, who, who appears increasingly paranoid, um, anyone he considers a threat. And things have taken on an even more alarming turn in recent weeks where Saeed publicly um, referred to racist conspiracy theories regarding migration from, from sub-Saharan Africa, which led to the targeting of people of colour in Tunisia. It's an interesting story what's happening in Tunisia now that, that, that obviously the president, I mean, we'll get you to sort of say, tell us exactly what the Tunisian president said, said in this speech, which has horrified many. But practically speaking, there are cases, aren't there, of people who have fled from the likes of Guinea um, to Tunisia and then have decided that actually it is better to go back to their homelands because um, their lives are unbearable. They are being refused food. They are being turned away from shops. 
Indeed. And, you know, there was um, a population of migrant workers in, in Tunisia before. Tunisia was also a transit country. People coming through Tunisia, um, often going on to Libya to use smugglers' boats to, to get to Europe. But in Tunisia, um, it was mostly people who had come to Tunisia to actually work. And, you know, they worked in the services sector and they worked as housekeepers, etc., and they they face some racism in the past, but this has been accelerated as a result of Said's remarks. And in that speech, which he has kind of, he and his officials have really dug their heels on. I mean, some Tunisian diplomats, ministers have been essentially repeating versions of what Said said. He essentially uh, referred to the, the great uh, uh, version of the great replacement theory, which uh, many listeners may be familiar with in terms of it's a it's a far right conspiracy theory that there is some kind of plan to replace populations um, in Europe in the U.S. with uh, with people from elsewhere. Uh, Said took this on or a version of it to basically say or claim that um, Tunisia's identity, as he put it, as an Arab Islamic nation was um, under threat as a result of migration from sub-Saharan Africa. And let's bring in Alex von Tunselman and, and, and Yossi Meckelberg into this. I mean, Yossi, Alex, this is exactly what we were talking about a few a few moments ago when it comes to Israel. A, you know, a government, or in case in Tunisia's case, one, one a, a president, trying to um, create an identity of fear. It's happening here in the UK as well. Well, the thing about Tunisia is that it was the big hope in the Middle East, going back to the Arab Spring. You know, everything, that, that's where it started, and that's actually where the more liberal, and, and many around in North Africa and Egypt looked up to Tunisia as the place that even, also for practical reasons, if civil society want to conduct meetings, they will go to Tunisia. They use the constitution in an example of how to apply it actually elsewhere in the Middle East, and it's all downhill from there. And that's the fear. I, I think to a part it's a Middle East issue, but part of it is actually a global issue that we see how populism, the more authoritarian tendencies, okay, in Brazil it changed a little bit after Bolsonaro, but we, you know, time will tell. Uh, we look at the American elections, now we're entering into, into this cycle of presidential election, of course. Uh, what happened in China that, uh, that the president was elected for the third time and he's become more authoritarian, Putin in Russia. So we are living, it's a kind of the, the, the zeitgeist. There's, is there's that, a hardening, isn't this there? Of, of, of the, in this direction. And I do think that this is related to the fact that a lot of these governments are not succeeding economically, you know, so that they come out with these kind of extreme um, populist right-wing theories. I mean, it's kind of fascinating to see this happen in Tunisia when, of course, in France, the kind of right-wing are demonising Arabs and North Africans. That Here we have the Arabs and North Africans finding a new kind of version of this theory that serves their own purposes. You've always got to, ha- you've always got to have an enemy somewhere. Yeah. It's mean, how Hollywood works. I mean, astonishing how you can find one. And yes, I, I mean, you know, we may well talk about Hollywood later too, I think. But I mean... Um, but yes, I mean, I, and I thought in Tunisia, I mean, it seems to me that since the Arab Spring, I mean, as I understand it, the economy was extremely dependent on tourism. And, you know, now that's obviously been under threat for a while. Um, let's move on, uh, Mary, to issues in Libya. I mean, this is a country, again, struggling to find a government. Um, and the United Nations has been struggling to help as well. Is there any results or any hope here? 
Well, uh, Libya recently um, saw the appointment of a new uh, UN envoy, Abdullahi uh, Bathili, who is uh, a Senegalese uh, diplomat. And uh, he brought kind of um, fresh energy, if you like, to the UN uh, file on Libya, which had, as you said, been kind of dogged by um, just the intractability of, of the Libyan political crisis. Bathili addressed the Security Council a couple of weeks ago, where he outlined a new plan um, that he hopes will will usher Libya towards um, elections, national elections. He's hoping that those elections may happen later this year. Libya was supposed to undergo elections in December 2021. Um, those were, were postponed. And it's quite extraordinary. My specialization is, is Libya. It's quite extraordinary. And I you know, regularly remind people of this. Libya has not had elections since 2014. So it has one uh, body, the House of Representatives, which was elected as, as Libya's parliament in 2014. And it has another body, uh, which is basically a, a kind of a reconstitution of another parliament that was elected in 2012. So there is immense frustration amongst ordinary Libyans that they're basically um, stuck with these two highly dysfunctional bodies, uh, stuffed with um, parliamentarians whose only real motivation seems to be preserve seems to be to preserve their own position and of course all the benefits and advantages that come with that. And when um, you, sorry, and when you have the United Nations getting involved again, it has been for several years now. How welcome is that now, or is this just is this just even more wearisome? Well, Libya tipped into a civil conflict in 2014, which is when the UN began political processes to try and, and address um, the violence and address the political power struggles that were driving it. Um, you know, it's fair to say it's, it, there have been a lot of up and ups and downs uh, since. There has been a ceasefire in place since 2020. So at least we're not seeing all out fighting across the country. We're seeing militia clashes uh, every so often. However, um, there is this discontent and frustration amongst the, the population now um, regarding the lack of political legitimacy in the country as they see it, that I think there is a risk of that boiling um, over into kind of um, social unrest. And, and that really is something that um, uh, the UN envoy Bethili is really conscious of. He's, he's conscious of those bubbling frustrations and the need to have elections then um, hopefully later this year. Mary Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. The time here is 9.41. Uh, we head to the Oscars in just a moment. Stay with us. Monocle's fresh out-of-the-blocks March issue asks if the automotive industry is heading in the right direction with an in-depth dive into the future of electric vehicles plus the potholes along the way. Elsewhere in the issue, we offer a common-sense manifesto for the future of business that's more bulls and bears than it is unicorns and fancy valuations. Plus, architect Ivan Ivanov's new Aussie vernacular, a crafty new inn in Fukuoka, and a review of Europe's best new factories for fashion brands looking to make it at home. Buy the issue today or do the right thing and subscribe so you never miss a beat. Head to monocle.com slash subscribe for more. Ten forty-two a.m. in Paris, nine forty-two here in London. This is Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Now, Karen Krasanovich, film critic, regular Monocle twenty-four uh, cinema guru. 
has just walked in. I'm in this wonderful, wonderful company today, and I don't know if I'd call myself that, but yes, I'm ready to talk Oscars and Ampass. Because there is a reason something happens in a few hours, which is kind of, which everybody in the cinema world just goes bananas for. Is this sort of, this is like Christmas for you guys, isn't it? It's exactly like Christmas. Christmas and New Year's all combined. Okay. How excited do you actually get? I'm very excited. I'm sweating. Um, I'm very excited. <laughs> I go to really boring film festivals all year long, and this is my high point. Right. And what do you normally do? So if you're going to really boring film festivals, which frankly for us mortals would think, actually, that sounds quite fun. We can go <laughs> to the it. cinema. <laughs> okay, we'll try it. <laughs> I'll take the risk. Okay. Um, but then you all go bananas on Oscars night. What yeah. as the sort of the, what does the film world actually do on Oscars night? I mean, physically, do you all dress up? Is there, is there a, do you all go around to each other's houses? Do yeah. you sort of sit and watch it on your own? Yeah, I mean, we, is there an element of sobriety? Is this a late night uh, indulgence? Just, just what's what's the vibe? Funny. What's the vibe around a, around a well, critics? Of course, you know, we're poor, to. humble people. Yes, and um, you can tell because we dress really badly. Uh, generally, we're, we're sort of a little snooty, and we feel you know we put a bet on. In fact. William Hill has just limited me to 25 pounds and I'm irked. But uh, it, we, we generally gather with our kind, stay up all night, drinking or not drinking, and then, um, yeah, then just argue about who wins and who doesn't win. In Hollywood, of course, it's different. People start months ahead starving themselves and getting the right clothes. And, of course, um, it's no longer the red carpet, apparently. It is the champagne carpet. So right. they're going to have to pick out a different dress for that. Tell us, tell us about the champagne. Why the whys and the wherefores of the champagne carpet? Well, you know that the the Oscar ceremony is not um, as popular as it used to be. It's been dropping in popularity uh, drastically, and so they're trying to address what they can do to shake it up and make people more interested. Of course, the slap last year brought a swelling of of audience members because everybody likes drama. Uh, so they're 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 putting a champagne carpet because everybody's going to want to see that. What, and then so what is the champagne carpet? It's a it's beige, beige carpet. Beige. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to watch now. Yeah. Alex is glued. <laughs> you can't bring your red wine this now onto the red carpet. So after that build-up, you've had, you know, Oscars in decline, lack of drama, lack of interest. Yeah. Tell you what, we'll take a really brightly coloured carpet that everybody loves and is synonymous with glamour and occasion and presence and we'll get a little bit of sort of like mole carpet or champagne or beige carpet to, to gussy it up a little bit. I just bit. wonder if they're going to go hessian next year. Going full sizel next year. Peculiar, <laughs> thank you. It's a peculiar uh, choice, but I think it's it's for... They're trying to make it look like an evening event, even though it's a day event. And they're they're trying. I'm assuming that this just shows off the dresses better. I mean, I don't really know that the thinking behind it. I'm not a member of Ampass. I'm assuming you. Okay, you okay. should be though. Anyway, so so I mean, Alex, as a cinema, you know, aficionado, and as being part of the of of the great great world of cinema. <laughs> Your reaction to this devastating blow at the absence of a red carpet? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that's something that's going to solve it. I think, you know, (laughs) I mean, call me a cynic. Um, Yeah, I I think one of the reasons that kind of uh, that viewership has been dropping is just because the Oscar ceremony isn't terribly exciting. And and they sort of know that. They've tried to uh, pull out some of the sort of smaller awards and kind of, you know, make, you know, set real time limits on the speeches and all of this kind of stuff. You know, and tried to get various kind of comedians in to present it and all of this, but nothing really mm. seems to have livened up. Is it just that award ceremonies are, are just inherently a little they're bit inherently dull? well, they're long, aren't they? They for are long, but and I also think that the Oscars are seen as um, kind of old school, and and also we've lost 
that, and it wasn't the pandemic, it's been kind of dribbling for a while, um, the, the generational pull to go to the big screen. And, and that's, that's what this is all about, the theatrical. It's not about streaming, even though the streamers are there. Of course, I should have looked that up, and I didn't. But, um, I mean, there are a few, like All Quiet and various others. Um, and I think we've just, we just lost that sense of event and glamour, and the Oscars are trying to pull it back. But I don't see how the, you know, the dropping 37%... Uh, you know, almost every year, five years. It was the f five years ago. It was the first time the audience was fewer than thirty million, and considering that millions watch these movies streaming and and other, it just means that people aren't interested. In fact, I've talked to people in the film industry, in the art department, let's say, um, who just haven't seen the movies and don't really care. Goodness me! So even if you are in the movies, you're not seeing the movies. If but if you're if you're working on a movie, generally you don't watch movies. You 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 watch what the people that you're going to work with, like directors or whatever you watch. But normally you're kind of too busy making this stuff. You'd be sort of like a painter going to a lot of, you know, galleries. Just confuse you. Okay. Uh, Yossi, are you going to be tuning into the, to the yeah. Oscars tonight? Or I'd, I'd, actually <laughs> I'd actually forgotten they were happening. So such, yeah. such is my adherence to this frenzy. No, and the, min the minute that you mentioned glamour, I understood why I'm not part of it. <laughs> so so it, was, it, it was obvious to me, you know. But you have why, the right accent for the glamour, so that's perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. But I, I must say, I, I think part of the reason that it lost a little bit, I, I, I went once, I'm, I'm showing you off now, that I, I, I went to the Cannes Film Festival. Ah. because of my brother and and when I went there what really hit me is the fact that you don't see the, you know, there are a lot of people that want to take photos of their stars but these days you don't see them because for security reason and other you actually see long limousines yeah. with them glass so they see them enter into a very posh hotel so you take a photo they took a photo of basically big limbs and that someone very famous supposed to be in in the car <laughs> but there is not kind of the immediacy of as it used to be yeah. as it's with politician by the way so there are details i think this took a little bit less than that and you you see even in, in Cannes, you see the journalists climbing on ladders there to take a photo with huge lenses and i think if you don't this mingling and it loses a little bit of it. It's, it's quite difficult, though. How about you, Alex? Have you? I mean, having you wrote Churchill, is that correct? Yes. Um, I, I, you know, my invitation to the Oscars must have got lost in the post <laughs> around that time. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no. I mean, it, it was. You know, I mean, I think these things. Um, my sister did attend uh, a few years ago when her then husband won one, and um, and so it was. Well, what I, what I mostly noticed, it was very funny on TV because uh, he, he, a man called Andrew Whitehurst, who won for Ex Machina, won for visual effects, very unexpected uh, because they were up against the big Star Wars film and all of this. And there was very a very deserved, uh, very deserved. I mean, I thought it was, and it was absolutely exquisitely done. Um, but there was a wonderful moment when the camera cut to them. And of course, my sister not expecting it, at which point on TV in front of those 30 million, however many people, she very clearly said a very sweary thing because she was so surprised, which began with FS. And it was very lip readable <coughs> on television in front of everybody. So. But that's kind of what we need from the that's, Oscars. That's the Oscars moment. If we've got a if we've got a beige carpet to contend with, <laughs> we need we need a few, need a few fruity mouthed characters. <laughs> um, I mean, just so from the background, the, the build up to it. So let's say you do get your invite. I mean, at what point do you just think, okay, we're stopping eating now, we're getting the sequins in, or do you just think, oh, we're fine, we're just going to go as we go? 
I mean, really, how are you going to compete with these Hollywood stars? I, th- I think just <laughs> oh, wear some good sort of, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm going to just wear some sort of large marquee type dress and hope for the best. I'm wearing those Dimas Russo's cast off caftans. Oh, Sounds yes. great. Yes. yes nothing, exactly. better than a, than a, nothing better than a moo-moo. Um Okay, so let's have a look at what the films are that we should be paying attention to. Because every time you come into the studio, Karen, I get this enormous feeling that I haven't done my homework. I haven't watched watched all the films I'm supposed to. I then vow that I will. I promise you that we'll go together and guess what? It never happens. We did a couple of times. We did a couple of times, which was was wonderful. And long may it continue. So when we're organising our cinema trips out, and indeed, if you're listening today and you're thinking, and you forgot, you two have forgotten about the Oscars, and you think, okay, I've got to get up to speed really quickly where do we start okay i'm just going to hit the the most exciting uh, categories that are very questionable because i've been reading a lot of experts and i know my i mean i'm not a member of ampas i know people who are members of ampas darn i gotta talk to them um so anyway best actress is is a huge category and it's either going to go to michelle yo of everything everywhere all at once or kate blanchard who already has two now this is you know we have to remember that it is a hollywood studio town who are they going to vote for? Okay, best supporting. It's either going to... There's a three-way here. Um, Angela Bassett, who is the most deserving. She won an Oscar, I believe it was in the 90s. And she's been doing great work. Uh, and she's, she's a woman of color, which the Academy sort of ignored this year. As, uh, uh, and then there's Jamie Lee Curtis, Everything Everywhere, who has been the film's cheerleader. She's also the original Nepo baby. She calls herself that. Uh, and then, of course, you can't decide between those two industry veterans, Carrie Condon. For so, which film? From uh, Banshees. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Where's your mo- so where's your money on, obviously, on Best, best Actress, Kate Blanchett or Michelle Yeoh? I'm, oh, I'm both. I bet well, That's both. no good. Yeah, I did, because I think Michelle Yeoh is going to do it if the Academy does the right thing, because Kate's Kate. I love Kate. In Tar, Tar is my favorite movie, but it is not getting a lot of Oscar love. It isn't. Why um, is that? And it's a an un- very uncompromising film. Because, well, it's it's who are you going to invite to the party? You know, it really is. It's very, very political. I talked to my friend yesterday, uh, who was shortlisted for the Makeup and Hair Oscar. Um, her film was, and I said, "Who do you think is going to win in your category?" And she said, "It's very political." Oh, right. Okay, that's a surprise. Okay, so we have Kate Blanchett and Michelle Mm -hmm. Yeoh for Best Actress. We have Kerry Condon, Jeremy Lee Curtis and Angela Bassett for Best Supporting. Mm -hmm. Uh, What else is exciting? Okay, Best Actor is going to be between Brendan Fraser in that prosthetic suit for The Whale or Austin Butler, who inhabits Elvis. And everybody loves Elvis. Mm. In fact, we're wondering if he can stop being Elvis. Both of which, yes, there is that issue, isn't it, which is actually raising quite a few smiles. Mm. Um, The issue with that one is obviously... um, Tremendous efforts in impersonation because with Brendan Fraser having to inhabit another body um, and Austin Butler quite successfully becoming Elvis, as you say, so much so we're just, I can't, I don't even know who Austin Butler is. I just see Elvis when he sees him. And these are two. You you sort of almost want to give them the the, the best Oscar for the Oscar for best actor for the Herculean lengths that they've gone to to get to get their job done. Yeah, that's true. Well. I mean, if we you look at it from, face, from an Oscar... <laughs> yes, no, I agreed with you because I was thinking Brendan Fraser just so, again, industry guy has been around for ages. and you know, Fell and, out of the spotlight, for disappeared a for a little while. Well, because he, he, was, he was actually... You know why? He was, he was injured doing all of his, um, his own stunts and he's had to have like major 
things done to his body to make him be able to live properly. So he's been out of the spotlight for a long time. Austin Butler. um, People liked Elvis better than they liked The Whale as a movie. So they think that that could tip it. Um, Okay. Everything Everywhere has 11 nominations. So we're wondering who's going to break that run. Uh, And also, I mean, All Quiet is a big spoiler. It's got a British producer. Um, and it has been doing extremely well in the other award ceremonies. It's, yeah, it's you been know, running it's a, up. And it's, and it's streaming, so people have seen it. Mm. I mean, a lot of people haven't seen a That's lot of That's a big difference, isn't it? That we now, we're, We've all got quite lazy, haven't Very we? Lazy. We don't want to go out that yeah. much. I mean, how often panellists do you end up thinking, I know I'm going to go to the cinema. I know in London in particular... Um, it is a particularly and peculiarly expensive thing to do. It used to be quite a an easygoing, low-effort midweek treat. And now it's how much? <laughs> and child-minding and parking. Or not even. Yeah, no, just even getting through Snacks. the door. Snacks. I mean, I, well, I went to the cinema this week to see um, the educational classic Cocaine Bear. Um, yes. So, so I've been very recently, but I mean, I do. I would say when I go to the cinema now um, in London, particularly, but actually also elsewhere, um, I really do tend to stay away from the multiplexes. There are lots of small independent cinemas that really are a much nicer experience, in my opinion. You know, more comfortable, better food. You know, not quite so soulless. Um, so, I mean, those are very much what I would recommend to people. Yossi, do you manage to get yourself to the cinema a lot? I, not that much, because I, I think we fold the variety on, on TV. And it's kind of an easy choice to go and look. But I, I, it's exactly the point. Not only they're nicer to go, I agree with you, the small ones, the variety. And I must think one of my disappointments moving to London many years ago, growing up in Tel Aviv, you, you have actually more variety of movies in different languages. It will be Spanish, it will be French, it will be Italian. And you can every week to go something different language that you can find. In London, you need to make an effort and travel a little bit to find international movies, something a bit different, which is what's easier growing up back in Tel Aviv. And is the rest of the world more Tel Aviv-based in directing, um, Karen, well, insofar as international films are, are much more an acceptable part of what you'll see at your local cinema? I think, and, 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 and I, haven't, I haven't been to Tel Aviv and I haven't looked to, and I didn't grow up there, so I'm going to say they, you're absolutely right in that regard. But I do think the cinema environment has changed. There's been, there's the need now to make money to keep these cinemas open. And so they're, they're opening the movies that have a, a bigger audience space rather than the niche films. You can still find them, but it takes an effort. For example, the Prince Charles Cinema down in, in Leicester yeah. Square will run really interesting movies. Not too many foreign language, foreign language, other languages than English. But uh, I know in France, there's a lot of variety as well. I think... Um, you know, in Tel Aviv, I think you're very international people. You travel a lot. There's a lot of people there with different languages. Same here. But there is a struggle to keep the places open. Karen, we have uh, 30 seconds. Okay. Uh, best film. Best film. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Why? Uh, because it's got everything going for it. It's got, uh, yeah, it's, it, and it probably will be Top Gun. Is it the best film? No. No, you can't say there's the best film. It's just an award. What is the best film, Karen? I love Tar. For love me, Tar. that was my that was my favorite. 
Brutal film. Absolutely brutal. And that brings us to the end of today's programme. My thanks to Karen Krasanovich, to Alex von Tunzelman and Yossi Meckelberg for coming into the studio. And thanks also to our editorial director, Tyler Brule and Mary Fitzgerald for joining me on the line. My thanks to our producers, Derezy Ray Bandley, and our studio manager was Sarah Nickel and Steph Chungu. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, goodbye and enjoy the rest of your weekend. <laughs>